0: If you turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, which is on page 1183 if you're using one of the church Bibles. That's Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 on page 1183 of the church Bible. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh. Was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and, the, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Paddy. Let's uh, pray together. Father, thank you for this magnificent passage we've just read, and we realize that we could never begin to plumb the depths of it. But we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit that delights to take your word and write it in our minds and hearts and lives. May that be his activity this evening. And may we go from here appreciating something more of what it means to belong to Christ, to be... In him. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, Daph, in passing almost, uh, challenged us as to question us as what we pray for specifically. It's an interesting question, isn't it? As you look back on the week, what have you prayed for specifically? Our prayer is a kind of great barometer of uh, the, the state of our health. It's an indicator of what's closest to our hearts. Now Paul's prayers in the New Testament are a wonderful insight as to what governs and controls his thinking, what is close to his heart. So in virtually every letter that he writes, we'll find a prayer. And Colossians is no different. In fact, as you've been going through Colossians on a Sunday evening, you've already looked at chapter one. Just have a quick look at that with me, please. Because he begins the letter by praying for this church. It's a prayer in two parts. He starts with thankfulness, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven, about which you already heard in the true message of the gospel. So when Paul, in his mind's eye, goes to that church of Colossae, he can't but help thank God for them. He thinks in that little trilogy of faith, hope, and love, which is that kind of shorthand for a description for a Christian. A person who's got faith in Christ, love for the brethren, and lives their life in the hope of resurrection. And he thanks God for that because it's a miracle of God's grace and goodness to them. But he doesn't stop there. The second part of his prayer at the opening of this letter... He uh, he intercedes for them, as it were. He he asks God something specific for this church. There it is in verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the gospel. So do you see in his prayers, Paul goes for the main thing. Not that he doesn't pray for uh, the, the detail of their lives and so on, but the big thing that he prays for, for these Christians, not only here in Colossae, you'll find it in Ephesians, you'll find it elsewhere as well, is this growth, this idea of being in Christ. He's passionate, in other words, that they, they understand and they get a grip on what it means to be a Christian. He knows that that's a lifetime's process. So he prays in growth terms, doesn't he? He prays that they will continually grow in understanding something of the breadth and the depth, the sweep, the scope, the implications of the gospel. Why? So that their just minds get puffed up with theological knowledge? Not at all. Far from it, isn't it? He prays this that they'll know who they are in Christ so that they'll live a life that mirrors what it is to be in Christ, a life worthy of the gospel. So it's a prayer about identity, who am I? It's a prayer about growing in understanding of who I am, and it's a prayer about that life of God spilling out, not least of all, through a spirit of generosity and thankfulness that is to be the hallmark of a church and a hallmark of individual Christians. Now, when we flick over to chapter 2 that we've come to this evening, those three things are still very much on Paul's mind and heart. He's kind of beginning to unpack them now. Look how he puts it there in these verses, in verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your life in him. There's that famous little phrase all the while, in him, rooted and built up in him strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Do you see the three elements there? Identity, rooted in him. Growth, built up in him. And life, overflowing with thankfulness. So, wonderful. What on earth could ever go wrong? If they got a hold of that, what could stop them? What could stop the progress of God's life in them? It all seems so tickety-boo, doesn't it? But we know from this letter, and we know from this chapter, actually, and from the New Testament, there are many things that can stop a Christian and stop a church growing in its appreciation of who they are in Christ, in their growth in Christ, and in their joyful overflowing in thanksgiving. They generally come in three forms in the Bible, as the Apostle John puts it in his letter we have a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here in Colossae, that opposition, as is often the case in the New Testament churches, comes in the form of false teachers. The same kind of men that dogged the Steps of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul have dogged the steps of the church right down through the ages to this present day. They are still alive and kicking right now here in Chesington, here in London, here in Britain. They appear harmless enough. In fact, you remember, Jesus likened them to having the appearance of sheep. But he says, in fact, Their teachings are deadly. They are wolf-like killers. And here in chapter 2, there are three of them. And uh, these will always be around the church in one way or another. And they will threaten to strangle the life out of a church and take Christians off into dead-end alleys. Here they are. The first are the super-religious. You see them there in verse 16. They want to lay religious observance upon the church therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival a new moon celebration or a sabbath day the super religious who say look if you don't keep these rituals you're not really a kosher Christian religion is just epidemic in the world isn't it and it's epidemic in our hearts and there's something quite attractive about somebody saying, well, yeah, you do this, you do this, you do this, and you know that you're on the right road. You know that God's pleased with you. You know that you're traveling in the right direction. It has a certain appeal to it. And there was a group coming into the Church of Colossae, and we find them very often in the New Testament, that were trying to, in a way, take them back to religion. But then there were at the other end of it, so, so to speak, the super spiritual, verse 18. In verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their spiritual mind. You see, this person comes along and wants to lay upon the Christian, upon the church, seemingly supernatural, ecstatic experiences. And says to the church, you haven't had this experience. If you haven't had this blessing, if you haven't had this vision, if you haven't had this insight, well, you've not really arrived as a Premier League Christian. You're a Christian, but you just need this. This is going to take you to the next level. This is really going to grip your mind with who Christ is. This is really going to cause you to grow as a Christian. This is really going to make you thankful. That's the promise that's held out. It's very attractive. And we find it hard to gain say because as Brits, we're we're far too polite, aren't we? And we, we just nod and acquiesce and don't like to say, well, it doesn't quite measure up with what I'm reading here in the Bible. But that's a danger. It's always a danger around the church. So there's the super religious, there's the super spiritual, and then thirdly, there's this other heresy of the super strict. Verse 21, they're all here, you see. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. I would be very surprised if there are not people in this room this evening who grew up in a church where the teaching was very strict. And behind it was this thought, now we've got to guard, we've got to safeguard young Christians. So we tell them, don't do this, don't do that. Don't go there, but don't go there. And it's It's done out sometimes out of a good heart. But it's actually not gospel. When I was growing up as a young Christian, which was many, many moons ago, and I didn't hear it from this church, but I remember reading this article which talked about the cinema. Don't go to the cinema. And it was spelled S-I-N-E-M-A. Don't go to the cinema. That's the place. If you go there, big question mark, whether you can really be a Christian Some of you, I can see by your faces, you know that. You've been brought, you've had experience of that. And part of it is to want to safeguard. But it's a pernicious thing. Because it's not liberating people to understand who they are in Christ. What Christ wants to do through their renewed minds that will lead to a life of true liberation that is not about rules. Because that's just another form of religion. Religion. But these three were around the church of Colossae. They appear so plausible, so well-intentioned, but they are enemies of the gospel. Now, that's why Paul is praying as he is here in verse 9. He's effectively saying to them, look, in Christ, you already have all that you need. Get a grasp, Christian. Get a grasp, church, on who you are in Christ. Christ, as he puts it in verse 9, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness. Notice the past tense. In the apostolic gospel, in the gospel that Paul has brought to this church at Colossae that's traveled down the last two millennia to us, in this apostolic gospel, Christians have already got everything we need. Which is why Paul is praying as he is. That God will open our eyes. That's how he kind of puts it in his prayer in Ephesians. That God will open our eyes up to realize who we are. Now, do you ever see pictures of Prince George? I'm sure you do on the media, in the paper, on the TV from time to time. Do you ever reflect upon this? Probably not, but I have. Like, Does George really understand who he is? You know, if he, if he visited here and he put him in story creche, would he really understand who he is? He is destined to be a king. He has a fabulous inheritance. He has incredible privileges. But he's just like any other three-year-old. He's, he's no real idea, is he? He probably gets little smatterings of it when people open the door for him and things like this. But by and large, it's not there, is it? And Christian, it's not far from us that, is it? That so often we fail to appreciate who we are. So how does Paul explain to them who they are? That they might begin to get an increasing grip upon this, that indeed might lead to them growing in their faith, that indeed might spill out into a spontaneous generosity and thankfulness day by day. Well, look how he does it. First of all, he says, look, verse 13. In Christ, you've already already been brought from death to life. In Christ, you've already been brought from death to life. You were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all our sins. You see, through the gospel... This seemingly weak, feeble message just brought to other people through people like you and I, through the teaching, the public teaching, the one-to-one teaching, through that message of the gospel, the power of God is at work. It seems so foolish in the eyes of the world, but it's God's word. It's God's power. It's God's way of doing things. And through... The power of this gospel, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, bringing the Word of God alive, the Christian has undergone a miracle. They've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. The greatest of all miracles has taken place, far greater than any healing of the body or apparent supernatural experience, because those things won't last. This lasts, this is done forever. You were dead. Morally, spiritually, soon to be physically dead. There's nothing that you could do to bring yourself back to life. No religious ritual. No out-of-body experience. No rigor of self-discipline. None of those things that these false teachers are peddling. No, dead is dead. It's like the parrots in the. Uh You're with me, Monty Python. A little bit of amnesia there, going. It's worrying, isn't it? In the Monty Python, <laughs> dead is dead. Paul, this is this is what you were. But more than that, notice what it says. You were dead in your sins. You were personally culpable. You were guilty as charged before God. You were utterly helpless to help yourself. You were imprisoned by the twin jailers of sin and death itself, those great enemies of the human race. That's what you were. And when God worked this miracle, it didn't seem to be so such a big deal at the time. It was so Quite, it, was, it was a gentle thing almost for many people I'm not even sure quite when it happened was it then, was it then but it has happened but it, it doesn't seem to be that massive that's often how we think about it but no, Paul says no this is the greatest miracle of all God made you alive with Christ he's gloriously intervened a resurrection has occurred life has been breathed into a dead spirit God made you alive in Christ. He has done it. You don't have to get religion, but a relationship with a God who made you and sent his son to die for you. Jesus goes to his death so that we won't have to. And the only part we play is there in verse 6. We must receive Christ as Lord. What does that mean? It means taking God at his word. It means believing that when Jesus was crucified, it was because he was taking in his body the penalty that I deserved. It was when he was placed in the tomb and raised on the first morning, Easter morning, that God was declaring that sin had been atoned for and a new life, a resurrection life, was now available to all who had been buried and raised to life in Christ joined to him it's a miracle look how it's pictured in verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised Christ from the dead God made you alive with Christ through the power of his resurrection baptism is but a symbol of that of what God has already done for you in Christ It's a declaration of reality. It's the most marvellous, glorious, beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing that could ever happen to anybody. And in Christ, that glorious miracle has been performed for the Christian. This is why Paul is praying. I want you to see who you are. I want you to see what God has done. He's brought you to life. The very fact that you're sitting here this evening if you're a Christian is down to the miracle, power-working work of God. Otherwise, you and I would be 101 other places. But God has been at work. Paul is saying, I'm praying that you see that. What do we pray for one another? Pray that I would see that, that she would see that, that he would see that. Who they are in Christ have been brought to life. It's a miracle. I couldn't do it. None of us could do it for any other person. We know that full well. We have loved ones if we're Christians, and some of them aren't Christians, and we would give anything in the world to bring them to life, but we're totally incapable and powerless of doing it. But what we can do is cry to God to do it, because He delights to do it. And Paul says, I want to pray that you understand that. But then look how he goes on in verse 14, please. He says, secondly, I want you to see that in Christ, God has brought you from guilt to pardon. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. You see, at the cross, as we've just sung, God did an amazing thing. Remember when Pilate nailed, had nailed that, uh, that warrant over the head of Jesus in derision, the king of the Jews? Pilate thought he was having the last word. This is what Romans do to their enemies, to these upshot kings. We crucify them. Well, what Paul is getting at here in verse 14 is that at the cross, God has dealt with rebels. Rebels like you and I. And he's done it, not by devising a pardon or turning a blind eye, but by taking the penalty himself. And because he does that, cancelling the death warrant that's against it, he nails it to the cross. At the cross, he obliterates the record of our debt. His justice can't demand that it's paid a second time. And notice what it says here. Would you look at it very carefully? He forgave us some of our sins. No, it doesn't say that. It says he forgave us all our sins. All our sins. Isn't that amazing? We know this full well. But if our hearts were revealed if there was some way of projecting up the thoughts, the actions the deeds of our lives and hearts upon this uh, projector that's behind me today none of us would remain in the room none of us would remain in Chessington none of us would remain in the land I dare to say we'd find ourselves on the furthest side of the world because we'd be so ashamed at the things we've said and done and thought and the ways we've acted and the depth of lust and the depths of jealousy and greed in all our hearts we'd run a million miles from this place if we could see that in one another god sees it but what's he done with it oh he's taken it and he's nailed it to the cross paid in full that's why the hymn writer captured it so gloriously didn't he my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. And if we were Pentecostal, we'd all be saying amen by now, wouldn't we, Ian? Amen, this is it. Because that's what God has done for us in full. Paul is wanting them you see when he's praying for them this is what he's got in mind all those seemingly unforgivable sins that haunt us that return to give us a good kicking from time to time God says what sins? they've gone they've been dealt with they've been paid for so don't torment yourself with them don't doubt my goodness, my forgiveness. And that's why he's praying. In Christ, you're forgiven. The guilt is gone. You're forgiven. And I'm praying that you understand that, Christian. Because the devil loves to come along, doesn't he, and give us a good kick in with his size 11 steel toe cap boots and remind us of these things. We read together Psalm 51 this morning. There's a man who messed up. What a great man David was in so many ways. But how he messed up big time. Murder, adultery, deceit, denial, you name it, it was all there. Against you, Lord, and you alone have I sinned sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. But David, you've killed a man. David, you've committed adultery. Against you, Lord, and you alone because he understands that ultimately it's a denial of God's claim and goodness upon his life and in injuring Bathsheba and in injuring Uriah and all the brokenness he's brought in, he's actually denied his God and sinned against his God. But where does he end up? Knowing God's forgiveness, anticipating Christ coming at the cross. That's why we could read that this morning with such joy such empathy in Christ you've been forgiven Christian all of it and in Christ verse 15 you've been brought from defeat to triumph having disarmed the powers verse 15 and authorities Jesus made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross now do you remember that scene in Narnia where Aslan is being put to death and all the demons and the fiends are gathered around and they're mocking and screaming at him and pulling these ugly faces. And it looks, looking on, that this is evil winning. Evil has won the day, raging against the Messiah. Yet it's at that very moment of weakness that God is actually doing his greatest work. They were so stupid, they couldn't see that. The devil is stupid. He thinks he's doing his best. He's only doing God's work. That's the size of our God. And Paul is saying, I want you to see that when Christ triumphed at the cross, when he conquered all the powers of evil, he was doing it for the Christian. He was doing it to demonstrate his supreme sovereign power that's at work for his people, for those he's set his love upon. Publicly, openly, finally, conclusively, supremely, Jesus has conquered all the power of evil so that no such power can separate any Christian from the love of God. But you say, hold on, Trevor. What about death? That seems pretty conclusive power. And the devil holds on and says, "Ah, oh, I've still got them. Gotcha." You see, because they're still decaying. They're still dying. There's still brokenness and heartache and terrible separation., "Gotcha. What's he got? He's only got the shell. He's only got the shell, and it's going through his fingers. It's like the grass here today, gone tomorrow. Where's the Spirit? The Spirit is with Christ. And that Spirit is one day going to be reunited and reclothed in a new glorious body. Gotcha? Not at all, you fool. Christ has got me. And that's what I'm praying that you'll understand, says Paul. That when he triumphed at the cross, it was anticipating that great new resurrection and new creation and the reclothing of his people forever. Christ has conquered. His people are free from the debt. I'm praying that God will help you see these things, says Paul. If you're joined to him, If you're in him, you're in the most secure place in all the world. If you're in him, no debt stands against your name. If you're joined to him, you're in the most secure place. Not even death can touch you. Oh yes, it will visit our physical bodies. But it cannot touch us. Eternally, eternal life has begun the life of God has begun through the miracle of new birth right now that's who we are Prince George doesn't get it does he, who he is do you get it, do I really get it I don't think so I've been 50 years or more a Christian, I don't get it I get it a little bit more than I did 5 decades ago I hope, but you know Eye has not seen nor ear heard the things the Lord has prepared for those who love him. It's an amazing, astonishing, life-giving gospel. And that's how Paul prays for this church. So wouldn't it be great this week? What about this week? We take this and we do three things. We pray... Yes, for ourselves, but we pray for another person. We pray this prayer that having received Christ, they might begin to understand what it means to be in him. Wouldn't that be a great thing to pray for one another? Far better than praying about our broken ankles or whatever it may be. Important though those things are. I'm not deriding it if you've got a broken ankle. Don't let them misunderstand me. But this is who we are. George, this is who you are. Do you get it? No, of course you don't get it, but you will get it. Well, let's take a step on towards getting it. What about praying that for one another? And what about praying that you and that person you're praying for will grow in their understanding of God, in appreciation? We've just touched on, this is is like a huge treasury, isn't it? But maybe this week, just focus on one thing. One of the great truths of the gospel, adoption or justification or forgiveness or sanctification, you choose one and just mull that over in your mind and say, Lord, by the end of the week, help me to understand this a bit more. Let me get hold of something that will help me. Let me search something on the internet, whatever it may be, however you do it. But at the end of the week, you think, wow, is that the case? That's astonishing. Let's pray that for ourselves, for one another. And let's be thankful. This letter is permeated with thankfulness. See, Paul can't, he can't think about these Christians, even those mixed-up Christians at uh, Corinth. He thanks God for them. I'm not sure I would, but he does, doesn't he? And when we think of that, what about this week? What about the end of every day? we stop and thank God just for three things. Three things where we're seeing God at work, whether in our own life or in the life of another Christian that we've encountered that day. Have you no words, says Cowper. Ah, oh, think again. Words flow apace when you complain and fill your fellow creature's ear with the sad tale of all your care. Well, half the breath thus vainly spent to heaven in supplication sent. our song would often be, hear what the Lord has done for me. Brothers and sisters, oh, that we might grasp a little bit more of what the Lord has done for us in Christ. And if you're here this evening, you're not yet a Christian, I'm so pleased you're here. It's wonderful that you're here. And I hope that you've kind of gained a little bit here and heard something that will help you on your journey to Christ don't by, be deceived by thinking it's something you've got to do you've got to be more spiritual you've got to be more strict on yourself you've got to be more religious no 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 you don't have to do anything God's done it all what you have to do is acknowledge Christ as Lord to say yes God you are God you are the creator you're my creator more than that, you've sent Jesus to be my saviour, to do for me what I couldn't do for myself at all, with all this religion, with all this rule-keeping, with all these spiritual experiences. Is that you? Well, why not tonight, even before you go to bed, even before you sleep, turn to God and say, Lord, wherever stage you're at, if this is the case, I want this for myself. I want to know what it is to be in Christ. And forgiveness that comes. And the joy that follows from being forgiven and accepted in him. And the hope that is that of the Christian in Christ. Let's pray. As a father has pity upon his children, so the Lord has pity upon us. He remembers that we are dust. Lord God, many of us in this room do belong to you. We are Christians. And yet you know, Lord, that so often our eyes are distracted, our hearts are dull, our minds are preoccupied with other things, that we lose sight of the incredible privilege of being in Christ. Deliver us from that, even this week, we pray. And cause us to be people who grow in our love for you, in your word, and in our gratitude and thankfulness, even this week. And Father, if we're not yet there, if we're not yet belonging to Christ, have mercy, we pray, and you've said you would reveal yourself to those who seek you. Please reveal yourself this evening, we pray. We ask all this for the glory and honor of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.